Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. (laughs) Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio as we reach the end of yet another week and edge ever closer to the point at which absolutely nothing happens in the world of politics. Although there was a bit of a surprise yesterday when Boris Johnson suddenly broke cover and accidentally revealed that he wants to be Prime Minister. Everybody seems to be getting the knickers in a twist about this story. However, I don't think it's come as any great surprise to anybody in the Tory party that Boris Johnson, the former Foreign Secretary, uh, you know, the former Mayor of London, wants to have the top job in Downing Street. Theresa May, of course, pledged that she would deliver a timetable for leaving, not the European Union, you understand, uh, but number 10 Downing Street itself. Apparently, we might be shot of her before the end of June. So there is some reason to rejoice, but can the Conservative Party actually run this country anymore? Can they honestly patch their party up and deliver Brexit in any form? If you look at the state of the polls at the moment, ahead of the European elections that happen next Thursday, uh, I'd have to say I've got some serious doubts about whether they can patch everything together and run the country properly again. 0344 499 1000. Coming up a little bit later on, we'll be finding out what the fuss is all about around the last episode of Game of Thrones, why Madonna is getting it in the neck over Eurovision and of course, because it's Friday, it is time once again for the Perrier Awards an homage to my brilliance in broadcasting this week. I'm expecting to win quite a few of them. 0344 499 1000. Of course, as ever, we want to hear from you because you provide most of the common sense on this show and we know that you have lots of things to say and this is the place to say them because you go don't get to say them anywhere else. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, if you were a reader of the broadsheet newspapers or the uh, unpopular newspapers, as uh, some former tabloid editors used to call them, Tory men in grey suits tell tearful May her time is up, says the front page of the Daily Telegraph. Prime Minister's fate is sealed in our long meeting with senior MPs who want to elect her replacement before the summer recess. And May pleads for time as Johnson targets number 10, according to the Times. Now, of course, Boris has long been known to have a great ambition to lead the country. Whether or not he can ever do that uh, is a matter 
matter of great um, sort of debate because the problem with Boris Johnson is that he's not terribly popular within the Parliamentary Conservative Party. He might be very popular in the shires. He might be very popular with uh, <clears throat> the ordinary members, the rank and file membership of the Conservative Party. But is he actually able to take over from Theresa May? And the biggest question of all is, could he do a better job? That's the question I'm going to now put to George Pascoe Watson, senior partner at Portland Communications, former political editor of The Sun. George, very good morning to you. Hi, good morning. I mean, the, the big question really is, I mean, I don't think anyone's particularly surprised that Boris has, has rather some, somewhat sort of stumbled over this ambitious plan of his and, and released it by, by accident while he was at a, a function yesterday. The big question is, one, for me, can he get there? And two, if he does get there, will he be any better than Theresa May? He can definitely get there. There's no question about it. Uh, he needs 105 Conservative MPs to back him. Right. That will get him down to the last two candidates. Those two candidates then go to the, as you say, the rank-and-file Conservative Party members up and down the country for a vote. Uh, and under those circumstances, Boris Johnson would absolutely romp home because mm. the Conservative members love him. Uh, they think that he's a, a very sort of colourful character, probably the only uh, sort of rock star politician this country has got. Right. Uh, and, and therefore they think he's, he stands the best chance of returning a Conservative majority at the next general election. Um, Conservative MPs uh, are not in the same boat at all. And very many Conservative MPs are deeply unhappy with Boris. They think he's aloof. They think he's standoffish. Mm. Uh, the reality is he's actually painfully, cripplingly shy. You, mm. you might not believe this. Listeners might struggle to accept that, but he is. Um, is that what he, accounts for his kind of occasional bluster and, and, and sort of rather um, bumbling sort of form, do you think? Yes, I mean, lots of people who are very, very shy find ways of covering that up. In Boris's case, it's by acting a bit of a clown yeah. and being very, very witty. Mm. That's his whole shtick, and he finds it very difficult to actually form relationships, particularly with his colleagues in, in Parliament, which is why they interpret him as being standoffish. He's also not a team player, right. and a lot of Conservative MPs have big difficulties with that. But um, if he manages to get those 105 uh, MPs behind him, he will almost certainly become the next mm. Conservative Party leader. And most people in the Conservative Parliamentary Party, by which I mean the MPs, are sort of grudgingly accepting that that is the future. Boris's own uh, campaigning has been very, very private. Uh, he's already seen around about 200 Conservative MPs privately, one-on-one. -on -one. And his pitch is simple. I am the only person who is going to be able to keep the Conservative Party in power, because all MPs care about their P45 probably more than anything else, uh, and that's a very persuasive argument. Would he be any good as Prime Minister? Well, um, good Prime Ministers are hard to find, particularly right now. Uh, it's not very clear what his uh, vision is for the future of Britain at this time, aside from Brexit. Uh, he is somebody who's not a detail man. He is somebody who would be uh, would find it very difficult to forge relationships on the international mm. stage. Most, uh, many, I mean, many he is. He does have a reputation for being a little bit gaff prone. I thought he did a great job yeah. as the mayor of London, um, and and he seemed to sort of become slightly more serious. And I know people who've worked with him in that office who said, you know, as he was told to become more serious, and he became more serious. He actually became a better politician. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and when Boris uh, knuckles down and focuses, he's actually very effective. Mm. He's a very, very intelligent man. Um, you know, he's, no, he's not, a, he's not a, a circus clown. He's yeah. a very, very accomplished uh, brain. And when he puts his mind to it, he can make things happen. He's a very effective deliverer of what he wants to happen. Right. 
so that's good, but uh, there's no question, uh, you know, on the international stage, there would be lots of foreign leaders who would raise their eyebrows uh, at his, what they would call a cavalier attitude to, to detail. Don't forget, there are blots on his copybook. He uh, was very loose with his language at the dispatch box in Parliament when he was the Foreign Secretary, which led, some people believe, to the continued uh, incarceration mm. of that British mum out in Iran. Uh, that's the kind of sloppy thing that he can do when he takes his eye off the ball. And so the, the, the jury is split as to whether or not he would be any good. In London, yes, he was a, a fine administrator, and he's a very good sort of PR man, if you like, for, for the city uh, during that period. But some would also question what was his record, what mm. changes did he actually make. I think that's unfair because the London mayor doesn't have that much power. Um, and Boris Bikes is obviously uh, one of the big things that we see in London every day. That said, and, pe- and people still call them Boris Bikes, even though they're not really Boris Bikes at all, which yes, is, well, a, tri- which is a tribute him. to his reputation, I suppose. Yes. That's my point about him being a, a genuine rock star mm. politician. You walk down the street with Boris, as I've done a number of times, uh, and you know, cab drivers beef at him. People literally stop in the street and mm. take his photograph yeah. as if they just bumped into Mick Jagger or the right. Queen or something like that. So, right. And that's a very potent thing for a Conservative Party which feels rightly that it's seriously unpopular right now. Yes. And what about the numbers game inside the House of Commons and inside the Parliamentary Tory Party? Because, you know, who would you say, for example, is his most likely uh, closest adversary who might beat him to it? Um, and could you envisage a point at which he doesn't get onto those final two names because of the fact that he has so few fans inside Westminster? Well, the risk, the biggest risk to him, Mike, is that the Prime Minister, Theresa May, Mm. will do almost anything she can with whatever breath she has left to stop Boris Johnson being her successor. She loathes the man. And the reason that she is, even now, not putting a date on when she's going to leave is because she's trying to see if she can keep keep herself in number 10 as long as she possibly can, Brexit happens under her watch, and suddenly mm. there's no real reason to have a Brexiteer uh, like Boris as her successor, because we will have left the European Union. Right. And that's the game in town that she's playing. And, and that could be a risk to Boris. Um, if the Conservative Party feel there's no real need now for an arch-Brexiteer to lead them, then that would be a, a significant problem for her. Uh, so for him, there are a number of people, people like Jeremy Hunt, Sajid Javid, um, there are people, you know, like Liz Truss, uh, Esther McVeigh. These are all people who are in with some sort of a shout. Mm. Um, the problem, I think, that Boris also faces is that, is that there are one, two other significant uh, conservative Brexiteers, uh, Dominic Raab and Michael Gove, who both also fancy uh, their chances. And if all three of them ran, the danger for them is that they split the yes. right wing of the vote. And that means that somebody more centrist, like a Jeremy Hunt uh, or, you know, or, or, or Liz Truss or somebody like that, could emerge. Penny Mordaunt, the newly named Defence Secretary, I wouldn't count her out. She's, uh, she's a very smart uh, a person, playing her cards close to her chest right now. Significant figure. Her heart is in the right place. She's got all the conservative attributes um, and you wait to see her. I think she'll put on a bit of a show as well. Yes, I'm sure she will. I mean, that's the interesting thing as well, isn't it? I think for Dominic Raab, it might be a little bit too soon, perhaps. But Michael Gove is also a very sort of tricky customer and somebody who has always had his eye uh, on the prize. And not least, Mrs Gove has also had her eye on the prize as well for some time. So so it's going to be fascinating to, to watch this all unfolding because we're being told, basically, that Theresa May next week will set out this timetable. And it looks as though... 
uh, come the end of June, she won't be here. Well, that's what a lot of people are factoring in, mm. and a lot of senior conservatives are making the assumption, and the newspapers carry this today, that she will be gone by the July summer holiday. But I'm, what I'm saying is that should happen, but do not count her out. Uh, she has a formidable reputation now <laughs> for many things, but one of them is for sticking around, and uh, she's hard to move. The big uh, other sort of nail in her coffin will come in three weeks' time when Conservative Party chairs... Up, in the, up and down the country, the association chairs who pick the candidates and have much more power than we know. Mm. They are having a meeting to discuss uh, what they want her to do. And if she hasn't announced her going by then, I think that, that becomes a final nail in the coffin. Either way, uh, by the autumn, she will definitely be, mm. uh, we will have somebody new leading this country. And, you know, that's a significant change. We now, the cabinet will change, the ministerial teams will change. Will they be able to go back to Brussels? I think it's, you know, uh, if we haven't left Brexit, uh, Britain has not had Brexit by then, the chances of another leader going back to Brussels and renegotiating are minimal, mm. to say the least. Uh, Europe is not in a mood to uh, have another stab at this. Um, and uh, that increases our chances of having a no-deal Brexit, where we leave uh, in, in November without a deal yeah. uh, and plenty of people in the government and by the way uh, you said Dominic Raab a little bit too early there's a whole raft of candidates uh, people like Tom Tugendhat James Cleverly uh, who have had no or very minimal ministerial experience but they think it's time for a generational change and mm. they will be putting up a really fierce fight as well they've got some of these people have got serious backers they've got a plan uh, and their argument will be Everybody who's in the cabinet right now is too tainted yeah. uh, with the old regime and what the party needs, and therefore the country, is a fresh start. But I agree with you. It's quite a tall order coming from no ministerial experience, not even leading the party, and overnight becoming the party leader and mm. prime minister. Also leading a party which is indelibly kind of damaged at the moment and maybe even more damaged after the, the elections next Thursday in the European Parliament because clearly the Tories have lost massive amounts of support around the country. Um, they've got a party which is riven by all sorts of different kinds of divisions. They've got right-wingers, they've got left-wingers, they've got centrists. They don't seem to know precisely what they stand for. And Theresa May has kind of created this situation that somebody has to inherit. How important are the donors? Uh, uh, to who gets in uh, next and how important is the business community that you work very closely with, George? Well, the donor community are essential and they're rarely, if ever, talked about outside mm. uh, polite company. Right. But, uh, you know, the, the, the money uh, makers are the people who really put their uh, support behind candidates. And, and the electoral college, the MPs and constituencies who actually vote in this election for the leader, they take great uh, indication from who has got the big money behind them because, in the end, that's a demonstration that the candidate is being taken seriously by serious people. Mm. So it does matter, uh, and, and the Conservative Party, all parties, uh, are, are funded in some way. Of course, the Labour Party are in the tune or uh, played to the tune of the trade unions. So nobody's, uh, you know, nobody's remote from this. The, the fact is the business community really do matter, but they don't matter in this particular election uh, because they don't have any particular uh, voice in it. Um, and I think, to be honest with you, people in the business community are so terrified of a Jeremy Corbyn-led government um, that they would rather anybody with a Conservative badge on their lapel uh, was the next Prime Minister rather than Jeremy Corbyn. And you are, are we, we ask, I ask 
audiences the whole time. Are you more concerned about a no-deal Brexit or Jeremy Corbyn in number 10? And everybody always says we're much more concerned about Jeremy Corbyn being a prime minister. Mm. So that's the way that one uh, falls. No, quite. And having watched the uh, prime minister's questions this week, um, it was so woefully bad that we definitely need some kind of a change of personality, if nothing else. And even if we saw anyone up against Jeremy Corbyn rather than Theresa May, it might get a bit more interesting. Well, that's a very good point. Um, and, and to your earlier point, uh, you know, whoever takes over from the Conservative Party, yes, it is in real difficulty and it's riven with division. But the fact is that that is a very low base from which anybody mm. can build. You can't yeah. really get worse. So uh, a fresh leader, whoever <laughs> he or she might be, will have a honeymoon period. There's definitely bound to be a bounce. You know, when you're the prime minister, you can do things you can't do when you're not. Uh, you have a stage and a platform and the ability to uh, to, to make mm. decisions, and all of that begins to demonstrate that the party has once again found its zest and its zip. But of course, if we still haven't left Brexit uh, by then, uh, then that new leader is immediately going to be bogged down. And what do they say? Do they say, I'm going to go back to Brussels and I'm going to fix everything, knowing that the overwhelming chance that they come back empty-handed, which makes them look stupid, um, or do we get to the situation which I'm beginning to price in, which is that that prime minister will have to bring forward a finance bill within uh, a few weeks of coming into number 10. Yeah. That finance bill may not pass because this person will not have a parliamentary majority. And if they can't get a finance bill through, they cannot govern. And we, we end up going for a general election yeah. before Christmas. Yes, well, that could well be a very exciting time for a lot of us. George, thank you very much indeed. George Pascoe Watson, senior partner at Portland Communications, former political editor, of course, of The Sun. He thinks Boris Johnson stands a very, very good chance of becoming the next prime minister, becoming the next leader. But my question is, can anybody actually lead the Tory party? Can the Tory party actually govern as a government of this country? Because after what's going to happen on Thursday, who knows uh, how uh, desperately riven and how desperately damaged the party will actually be 0344 499 and also whether you love him or whether you hate him will Boris Johnson do a better job than Theresa May will he be able to do any kind of job whatsoever and is he the guy to take us finally out of Europe uh, in a way that most of us can agree is the right way to do it across the UK online and on DAB the independent republic of Mike Graham on talk radio I think there's somebody in there who wants to torture me with this rubbish all the way through the show today. They're going to be playing all these awful Eurovision songs, which I can't stand. I can't stand the Eurovision Song Contest, uh, and I'm quite happy to admit that here and now. And we will be talking to Dan Wooten about it a little bit later on, though, uh, who's down in Cannes at the film festival. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call us on uh, if you want to get on and talk about Boris Johnson, talk about the Tory party, talk about Theresa May finally leaving, which it looks as though uh, is actually going to happen, hopefully, before the end of June, uh, if all goes well. Right now, now that we're going to talk to our good friend, Mr. Uh, Dr. Lawrence Buckman, uh, who, of course, uh, as a friend of the show, talks to us an awful lot. Today's conversation uh, with Dr. Buckman is going to be about measles, because apparently universities are being asked to maybe give the jab to 250,000 teenagers uh, who missed out because of the MMR scares uh, back at the turn of the century. Dr. Buckman, very good morning to you. 
Good morning. Now, uh, there is growing concern, I'm told, about the disease amongst health chiefs because it's been cropping up a bit, hasn't it, measles? And and some people say it's because uh, people are coming here from other countries where their vaccination programme wasn't so good. Others are saying it's down to the MMR scare of the, the, the turn of the century where a lot of kids didn't get uh, the measles vaccine. What's What's your view? I think most of it's due to the MMR scare. Yeah. Uh, the amount of imported measles is pretty small. It does happen, but it's small. But it's much more that large numbers of kids were not vaccinated mm. because of the, the scare. Yeah. I mean, I remember at the time we had we had children who, who needed the vaccination and we did debate it. I mean, we were concerned about it. We did get it done in the end. But we, we I remember we had a quite sort of robust debate about whether it was dangerous because it was very unclear at that time. Actually, it was extremely clear that it was very safe and entirely appropriate that people should have it. But there was one very important, now discredited research paper Mm. um, that made it clear that there was a risk. And there is no risk. The evidence is not there and never was. And the person that wrote it has been dealt with as accordingly. This is Wakefield. Yeah, no, but what I'm saying to you, as a relatively important um, uh, step in the child's development, as a relatively intelligent individual and and, and a a family of people who were relatively well-educated, we weren't sure. And I think a lot of people felt the same way. Of course, huge numbers of my patients were not sure. Um, They were convinced there was at least a risk on the no smoke without fire principle. Um, They decided there must be a risk and there isn't. All vaccination carries a risk, and the risk of MMR is small. Mm. I understand why some people had understandable distress at their child being unwell and blaming it on MMR, and I can see why that happened. But in fact, there is no evidence to support that. Right. And so what's the effect now, then, in terms of the numbers we're talking about? 250,000 teenagers, quite a big number of people uh, who, we are told, now do need to have this vaccination. It's important that nobody spreads MMR into or the diseases that come from measles and the associated vaccines into the next generation. Right. Measles is a very dangerous illness. We forget now. I just remember it barely. I never saw it as a doctor, by the way, only as a stu- only as a as a student. Mm. <laughs> and <laughs> and certainly we're seeing it reappearing. And measles can harm and kill little babies. Yes, and presumably the more people who are not vaccinated against it, the higher the risk is that it spreads to more people. Yes, Um, you need to have what's called herd immunity. In other words, lots of people who are protected from it... (coughs) Excuse me. That's all right. You don't sound very well, Doctor. No, I'm bursting with health. Um, (laughs) you need to have lots of people who are protected in order not to spread it around the community. Right. And the trouble is, when the numbers drop to a certain critical percentage, that protection isn't there. That's called herd immunity. And we've lost, we're losing it in, in measles terms. Yes. And what about um, the whole Tony Blair factor? Because I remember that as well, where uh, he was sort of roundly criticised for not revealing whether his son Leo had been given the MMR. Uh, He was happy enough to come out and have a a, a mug with Leo's name on it. He was happy enough to kind of use his family for certain parts of the publicity machine, but he wouldn't ever reveal um, that that, that he had taken the decision one way or the other. Do you think he was wrong? Yes, I do. Mm. Uh, I, I understand why a prime minister says my, my health matters and my children's health matters are private. I understand that. But the fact is, he made it appear that his child had not been vaccinated or mm. might not have been vaccinated. Yeah. And I think that was an error 
that convinced the public that there was no smoke without fire and therefore they shouldn't have their kids vaccinated either. Now, yeah. I have no idea whether the kid was vaccinated or not. And at this point, it doesn't matter. The fact is, he certainly put out a very misleading public health message. He did, and that was part of the problem, I think, because, as I say, it wasn't so much that anyone was certain, but if you're prevented or presented, rather, with a, uh, with a situation where your child may be irreparably damaged by something that you have effectively told a doctor he can do to your own child, then you are obviously going to be hesitant. Absolutely. I don't blame any parent for being scared after the Wakefield uh, matter. I, I, don't, I, I can understand why all of them felt, oh, goodness, this stuff must be dangerous. We shouldn't be giving it to our kids. But they forget that measles is very bad for children, uh, or can be. I, I had measles as a, as a small boy. I remember being unwell, uh, and I got over it. But very small children mm. can be irreparably damaged or killed by measles. And if we allow that to come back into this country, that would be terrible. Yes, indeed. And measles, mumps, rubella, which is what the MMR is against, basically, um, yes. is not just about measles. Because, I mean, if you get mumps when you're in your 20s, I understand, if you're a, a young man, it can make you infertile, can't it? Uh, yes, it can and does. Yeah. Um, and uh, we see that periodically, that young men who rendered uh, infertile yeah. by virtue of getting mumps. Mumps can also cause a brain disease, which is... Uh, severely damaging mm. if not fatal yeah. and rubella of course harms unborn babies yes so basically um if you are a teenager if you are the parent of a teenager who hasn't had this uh, injection then you should just basically go and organize it how is that being done is it is it is it go to your gp what's the story i think they're going to organize mass vaccinations for university kids right. uh, and i think that makes sense and i think gps are going to be asked to pick up what they can and i'm sure they'd be happy to do so because It'll reduce the incidence of measles, mumps and rubella in the community. Mm. Uh, it's definitely worth doing. Right. Um, I can't think anybody will resist, uh, any doctor rather, or health facility will resist doing it. I think it's important. And we will, re we will increase herd immunity and reduce the incidence of three horrible illnesses that harm people. Yes, absolutely right. Well, listen, Dr. Buckman, thank you very much indeed. Go and get yourself a, uh, a, a spoon of Tixie Licks or something, wherever it is, to cure that hacking cough that you've got. Uh, Dr. Lawrence Buckman talking about measles and the importance of being vaccinated against it. And if you've got a kid who has not been vaccinated against it, for whatever reason, uh, now's the time to fix it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio.
bad, isn't it? Latvia, apparently. 2008. I don't know that. I just was told that, by the way, in case you're wondering how I have this encyclopedic knowledge of all of these songs. Uh, Dan Wooten, however, uh, is a man who I'm sure is very much looking forward to the Eurovision Song Contest. He's down in Cannes still. He's been watching Rocket Man. Uh, Dan, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. What would you make you say that, Mike? <laughs> listen, that listen. I've I've been following your career for many years, Dan, and I know you're a big man for the Eurovision Song Contest. And I'm, no, you know, I, I love it. And I'm, I'm sure this it. year, with Madonna being there, it's going to be even better than normal. I might even take a sneak peek at it. My kids quite like it, so so you know, I might have to watch a little bit of it. Oh look, it's great fun. And the thing is, actually, this is what we want from Eurovision, don't we? We want terrible songs and camp performances. Yeah. But I actually really feel for Madonna. I mean, you know I love Madonna, so sure. I'm, people probably think it's predictable that I stand up for her. But but at the end of the day, people keep saying she's profiting out of Eurovision. Yeah. Actually, she's not, because what happens, you see, is you have to, she actually has to pay to put the concert on right. herself. And that's actually over a million dollars, well over a million dollars when you take into all of the production costs. And then the second thing is, why should she feel politically pressured right. not to perform at Eurovision because it's in Tel Aviv as well. I hate this whole mob mentality yes. that social media gets against someone doing something. And look at Lord, you know, the New Zealand pop star yeah. who ended up cancelling her tour to Israel. Well, then all you end up doing is annoying both sides of the party. Well, exactly right. And you're, you're quite right to say, I mean, you know, this is a, a, a sort of a joyous celebration. It's got nothing to do with politics. It's got everything to do with having a good time, having a party, and, and let's just get on with that. Uh, you know, there's enough misery in the world without having to cause any more, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, look, it's always great because we look at Eurovision ironically in the UK. We yes. know that our lad, Michael Rice, is going to be thrashed and will do terribly. And <laughs> I actually did a little campaign for the Lorraine show um, down on the closet here at the film festival with my sign and my Union Jack I uh, saw glasses that. and hat. Because, you know, actually, at the end of the day, they hate us. They hate us even more at the moment because of Brexit. But there's something nice about being hated and not taking the whole thing seriously because you can just watch it and have some fun knowing full well that we'll be very near the bottom of the table, no matter how well this young lad performs. <laughs> exactly right. Now, tell us a bit about the uh, Rocketman movie, because I'm reading your review in The Sun today, and you're suggesting, uh, rather ambitiously perhaps for them, that it could get an Oscar, or at least a nomination anyway. Uh, I really think it deserves it. I mean, it's early on in the year, but I'm sorry, if Bohemian Rhapsody can win Oscars and yeah. be nominated for Best Picture, this absolutely should. I... I I actually said to Elton afterwards, and it's the top line of my review, I feel like Bohemian Rhapsody is the cheeseburger. Rocket Man is a sirloin steak with a big helping of lobster on the side. Mm. It is a tour de force of a movie. The thing is, you know with Bohemian Rhapsody, Mike, everyone was saying the really negative aspects of Freddie Mercury's yes. life were almost covered up and mm. was whitewashed. This is the total opposite. I mean, this movie is Elton John as a drug addict, a sex addict, someone struggling with anger management, mm. someone who is bulimic, someone who is physically abused. And what the, I guess the overall story is, because obviously I'm not going to give any spoilers or anything like that, but the overall message is he was like that because he never had love from his parents. Yes. Obviously both deceased, but their portrayal in the movie is 
I mean, it's it's harsh. It's it's really, really Yes, I, I mean, harsh. I knew about the row that he'd had with his mother, who he didn't speak to for many years. But what I didn't know um, was that he didn't... Uh, his father never saw him perform. Never saw him perform live. Yeah. And his, his father blamed the arrival on Alton on the fact that his marriage to Sheila Alton's mum broke down. Right. And... Actually, you know, uh, there's even a suicide attempt portrayed, portrayed in, in the music. And I know it sounds a strange thing to say, mm. but it's done. It's it's all done so beautifully because this is a fantasy biopic. So so there are moments when you're almost living in an Elton's head rather than actually in the real world. Mm. Taron Edgerton, who plays Elton John, you know, he's the guy who was in all of the Kingsman films. Yes. Well, I think he'll go from superstar to megastar after this performance. He should definitely secure an Oscar right. nomination. He basically becomes Elton. And the other amazing thing is, Mike, he sings the song. So, you know, Rami Malek was lip syncing yes. Freddie Mercury's voice. Taron Edgerton, he has sung all of the songs here. Right. And it's fascinating to watch Elton John sort of, as I think I said to you the other day, preparing himself to watch a movie about himself. I mean, we know he's a pretty flamboyant guy, but he's quite sort of shy in a bizarre little sort of way as well, isn't he? And how is he taking it all? Is he taking it? I mean, he must be sort of in two minds almost about it. Oh, my gosh. He was so emotional, Mike. I've never seen him like that. So at the end of the film, he was literally sitting there sobbing. I mean, Mm. there's no other way to put it. He was sobbing. The reaction, because you know, can can be brutal yeah. as well. I mean, movies can be booed. You cannot get much applause. Right. I mean, there was a people get up and I, walk out sometimes, don't they? Yeah, no, totally, totally. I was in one earlier in the week when people were walking out, but no, there was standing <laughs> ovation at the end, and yeah. they got a huge reaction. I spoke to the director Dexter Fletcher afterwards, who was just totally blown away by how much people loved it. There have been mixed reviews. There will be mixed reviews for this musical, Mike, definitely because. It very much is a traditional musical. It almost feels like watching Grease. Now, right. for me, that's an amazing thing. Mm. For other people, they will think that's not particularly like modern or interesting filmmaking. But you know, when you've got the quality of Elton's song, plus, I would say, one of the best showbiz stories ever. Right. Because this cuts out all the boring bits. I mean, this is this is the the hell of his his life when he came close to death mm. because of his alcoholism, because of his drug addiction, numerous times. I mean, it, it blew me away. Yeah. It, it actually genuinely blew me away. One of the best movies I've seen in a long, long time. And it's and it's great timing as well. To, it's great timing to get Richard Madden now as well, isn't it? I mean, I know that's just coincidence, I suppose. But you know, after all the fame in Bodyguard, suddenly here he is in in another big movie. So so you know, sometimes luck is uh, playing a part in these things as well. Oh, absolutely. And his character is a nasty one. I mean, John Reed. So John Reed was basically Elton John's one of Elton John's first personal manager, mm. but also his first serious boyfriend. He is portrayed horrifically. There's even a scene where he hits Elton. Now, of course, right. this is a fantasy biopic. No one knows for sure what happened. I guess we'll find out when Elton releases his autobiography later this year, which is expected to cover a lot of this stuff. But you'd imagine, given this was a film endorsed by Alton, mm. produced by his company, essentially Alton is very much backing up the story here. Yes. So so there are there are some not very nice 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 people in there. But the, you know the guy who comes out, the hero of the piece is actually Bernie Torpin, who is Alton's um long time collaborator. You know, he writes all of the words for all of Alton's most 
famous song, right. you know, your song, Candle in the Wind. And he actually comes across as the rock in Elton's life right mm. from the start, sort of the one person in that horrible showbiz world who is actually uh, looking out for him. Right. Funnily enough, the first time I met Nick Ferrari was in the old Sun newsroom in Bouverie Street. He'd just come back from Australia where he'd been to try and get an interview with Elton John and he had a black eye because he'd asked John Reid uh, if they were having a homosexual affair and John Reid punched him. So, I mean, he certainly was punching some people. <laughs> well, they were, they were. And they actually talk about John Reid was essentially getting girlfriends in for Elton right. to cover up this affair. And, and the character of John Reid actually says in the movie, you know, look, if this comes out that we are in a relationship, our your career is over right. and we lose all his money. But when they did split up for a period, he remained Elton's manager and Biola mm. Cubs, not a particularly... Uh, not a particularly nice man. There will obviously be people, uh, Mike, who say, well, of course, Elton John is going to portray himself as the, as, as the wronged right. party because this is his biopic. But that's what happens, isn't it? Well, you know? exactly right. I mean, if you can't control your own movie, what's the point? Dan, listen, have a great time. Thank you very much indeed. Have a good weekend. Eurovision coming up, of course. Uh, Dan Wharton down in Cannes, uh, having a great time and working as well. Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It's 12.35. It's Friday. It's time for this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Perrier Awards. And here we are once again, time for the Perrier Awards, the, the homage to my brilliance in broadcasting, presented as ever uh, once a week uh, by the remarvellous Louis Theroux. Sorry, no. uh, Cornelius Mendes. Uh, Scott has tweeted to show me a picture of uh, you as Louis Theroux. I don't know why he thinks you sound like that. No, neither do I. Uh, that's right. It's time for another excitement, exciting instalment of the I mean, it's Perrier like he Awards. doesn't ever read it before he writes it. Each Friday, we look back over the past week of the so-called Independent Republic. So of Mike Graham. Now, yes. I know everyone's nervous and desperate to find out who will win, yep. but enough about Charlton's playoff game tonight. Oh, it's time God. to hand out these awards. Yeah, uh, go on, then. So, as is tradition, the first one goes to you, Mike. Brilliant. You win the Man of the People Award. Thank you. These two renewable electricity in the UK are now around about $8.6 billion per wow. year. Wow. Uh, you can imagine. Uh, yeah, you can get very rich <laughs> in this game. Uh, presenting a talk radio show, you're in the wrong business. <laughs> well, I'm getting pretty rich doing No, I'm sorry, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> the renewable energy business is more, has got more money in it, it's true. Well, you should consider it. I should. Uh, <laughs> most obvious Perrier moment now. Uh, James Max, friend of the show and host of the Early Breakfast Show, normally has eye-opening content, but... During uh, one news bulletin, it sounded like he was struggling to keep his eyes open. Meanwhile, you are listening to Talk Radio and the Business Breakfast Show uh, with me, James Max. It's six o'clock. Let's get the latest news headlines now with Sandy Wall. Good morning, James. WhatsApp hacking scare. Users urged to update their software. China-US trade spat hits the markets. And is there such a thing as a business gene? <laughs> that was brilliant. There's a little video doing the rounds on that one as well. The yeah. Talk Radio Twitter page, you'll see it. Very good. Um, an old favourite now, repeater of the week, and that goes to Robert in Motherwell, uh -huh. definitely. Yeah, I mean, you look around in Motherwell or Hamilton, I know the two places pretty well. Um, I bet you on a Saturday night you could do with a few extra coppers and a few more um, people like yourself on the street keeping order. 
Definitely, mate. Definitely. Mm. Definitely. <laughs> I love the way they say it up there. Definitely. It's got an A in it. Yeah, really great. Yeah. Um, now, if I were to tell you that Ajmal Masroor, a London imam, was involved in the wrong name of the week, you might be surprised to find out that it was someone else's name that led to confusion. Okay. I think the problem we have, um, Graham, is that Islamophobia it's Mike, killed. actually. <laughs> sorry, Mike. So sorry. It's, uh, I, I thought your title was called The Kingdom of Graham, so maybe that's... No, it's the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. <laughs> Twice he got it wrong. He I did, it. yeah. Thanks very much for that. Um, uh, thanks to columnist uh, James Dellingpole, who's won the Perry Award for Marketer of the Week. Why would anyone want to listen to the BBC anymore? Listen to Talk Radio, everyone. It's much, much better. There you go. Thank you very much. We may clip that and use it later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wise man. Um, you again now, Mike. Mm. Uh, along with Alex Proud, the owner of Proud Galleries, uh, whilst discussing Monet's expensive painting, you both won Tangent of the Week. We sell photographs of Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones, and I, I believe in that, 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 that it's wonderful trying to democratise. Are you round the back of Charing Cross? <laughs> yes, that's oh, I know where you are. A long time now. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly. where you are. I drink in that yeah, pub we... right opposite your shop. <laughs> oh, yes, I know. I, uh, well, we, we probably drunk there probably. Uh, only next to each other. Yeah. We probably See, will again. This is what this is what this show is all about. You know, camaraderie. You, you could probably do that with any pub, though. Um, Very harsh. <laughs> uh, another favourite now. It's impression of the week, and that goes to Martin Roberts from Homes Under the Hammer. He wins a perrier for his take on a fictional. Doris from the 1900s, who also seems to sound like a parrot. It's probably some harmless gardener called Doris. Yeah. In the 1900s, he said, "This is a pretty plant. Let's plant a bit of this, shall we, dear?" <laughs> he was very excitable, wasn't he, Martin? Yesterday? Yeah, very interesting mm. person. Uh, this was a conversation about Japanese knotweed. Um, according to Martin Roberts, nobody really knows where Japanese knotweed comes from. <laughs> So he wins a conspiracy theory for the, his suggestion uh, for where Japanese knotweed <laughs> came from. Little did we know that it would take over the world. It's a fiendish plot. It may well have come from space. Right. Are you sure about this? <laughs> yeah. Or, or possibly Japan. <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> Uh, moment of the week now. This is an obvious choice. Mm. In the newspapers, there was a dog who howls along to the countdown clock when it's on telly every great. day. Of course, this caught our eyes on the show. We had the Brexit countdown clock. We do. Uh, which, say, uh, is sort of inspired by countdown theme. Well, it's exactly the same. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we got Holly the dog on the phone to right, see right. what would happen. Let's go with the, uh, the Independent Republic Brexit countdown clock and see if we can get Holly to howl. Go on, Holly. It's not howling. It's looking around. Why it's not howling? Well, look, it's confused. I think like she's like Parliament, very confused currently. Is she nervous? <laughs> yeah, I think she's just confused. <laughs> Should we give it one more go? Come on, Holly. It. Brilliant. Well done, Holly. Fantastic. <laughs> Listen, I can make Holly, I can make Holly howl. <laughs> well done. Very good, that. <laughs> it was good fun. Some people accused me of, 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 of howling myself or getting the guy to howl. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was the caller at first. No way. Um, it's definitely no, the dog. No, don't worry. 
bit of Susan in Exeter Good now. Good job. Uh, first of all, she won the Perrier for Hesitation of the Week. Let's talk to Susan, who's in Exeter. Hello, Susan. Good. Is it afternoon? <laughs> Good <laughs> afternoon. Yes, it is. Good place where she wanted to get it right. Yeah. Uh, that conversation was uh, led on to the debate of the week. The subject, of course, is bamboo stronger than steel? Bamboo is stronger than steel. Is it? Are you sure? Absolutely. Well, why don't they make cars out of it then? <laughs> well, that's another option. Bamboo we could do. Car. We could make boats out of it. Boats. We could make. We, we need. Well, of course, we can make anything out. No, of you it. can't. Waterproof it. I don't agree with that. Of course, you can. <laughs> and that. Imagine a bamboo boat. <laughs> that led to this really weird moment. Some people in Plymouth made a boat out of plastic. Pandas. Plastic. <laughs> Sorry, somebody else said pandas. (laughs) Plastic. Somebody else said pandas in my head. Show that. Uh, Look, I love panda bears and I love animals. I wouldn't make anything out of a panda. Well, they eat bamboo. They eat bamboo, don't they? Yeah, well, we can we can ship it back over to China and give them some food because they're running out of bamboo. I don't know. I'm speechless. Uh, uh, one more. Finally, David Buick wins the much-coveted Perrier for shutdown of the week. The Buicks, where are we off to? North Devon yeah. and, Norf- and Norfolk. Well, and I, we did, I did Devon last year, right, which was the, our decision because we wanted to take the dog with us this time, yeah. right? And it rained pretty much every single day. And we were staying in this lovely old sort of uh, cottage which attached to a sort of stately home. And they had a swimming pool, which we never went in. Because it was never warm enough. Yeah, well, we had exactly the same. So I'm not doing that again. Well, we are. <laughs> That's it for the fairy wars. They will be back. Well next done, week. Noel. The Perrier Awards on Talk Radio. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.